Well, we're going through a series called Old School Theology. We're walking through the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed. And right now we're about four deep into the Ten Commandments. And we've called this uh, holding up the rules. They are rules. They are commands. They are duties given to us that set us free. And that is the idea of most people think Christians and Christianity and the Ten Commandments in the Bible is all about telling us what not to do. And they don't see it in its context. And hopefully through this series, that opinion might be changed in you and you might share it with others. And so today I just wanted to uh, begin with, with a question. What do you think of when, when you see these? What do you think of when you hear these names? If I were to flash these up here, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Ronda Rousey, Peyton Manning, Harrison Ford, Sierra, Ciara. What do these people have in common? At the very least, they have names. And every name I mention, you saw something or you thought of something. Names communicate more than just recognition, more than just, hello, my name is, or a title. Uh, some people call me Pastor Judd. I prefer Judd, but sometimes they throw that title out there. Names present more than that. In fact, what Lauren read earlier, the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Names communicate character. Names reflect nature. In seminary, one of my professors was Dwight Pentecost, and he wrote a book called The Words and the Works of Jesus Christ. And so through what we say and through what we do, that's how people know us. And so another way you can say it is what, how we talk and our walk is how people know us. And that is when I say, if I were to put your name, I was thinking about, but I didn't check with anyone earlier. I didn't want to put somebody's name up there and them all, oh, he put my name up there. But I could put your na somebody's name up here. And you would say, oh, that's a sweet, dear brother. And so the question I want to ask and answer today is, how do we communicate and reflect God to the world around us, to the, this, this age uh, that's, that's dominated by Satan, that's dead in their trespasses and sin, that is damned to go to hell if they don't know the true God? What, what can we do? Well, we can look at Exodus 20, verse 7. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus 20, verse 7. And let me just give you a quick overview of the Ten Commandments. Uh, the first four, again, to love God. The next four are the love of neighbor. It didn't make it to the slide just because I forgot to do it, but understand this. These laws are both internal and external. That is, that God demands obedience, not only in our actions, but from our internal affections. And they have a both positive and negative side. So there is a duty to be commanded, the positive, and there is a sin that is forbidden. And so we've summarized this thus far as this. The one God who is unlimited should be treated as holy and made a priority. We've covered the one God. There is no other God. There's, there's the exclusivity of God who is unlimited. He cannot be captured in any image. He cannot be captured in any idea. He is a God that is incomparable, should be treated as holy and made a priority. Knowing this, we should love and glorify this God by building a society that honors life, that on Sanctity of Life Sunday, we looked at that, that God really cares for every human being and that the fruit of, the, uh, of, of murder is the root of anger, and God wants us to honor all of life all the time, and that we should honor life, relationships, property, and the truth with hearts satisfied in Him. And so today, we're going to look at this God. There's one of them who is unlimited, and He should be treated as holy. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, that's what we'll look at today. First, we're going to look at God and his word, we're going to look at then how man has responded to that. We're going to look at Jesus and how he saves us from our sin and then our mission. We begin with the heaviness of God. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That is the first half of that verse. You, the people of Israel immediately, the people of all time universally, Romans 2.15 says God has written the law on their hearts. So this applies to them as it applies to us. As we sit here today and we look at our Bibles, we look at the screen and we hear the word preached. You shall not take strong negation. The word literally means to take up, 
or to lift up, to take in one's hand. And thus, if you think about that, you shall not take, it's going to mean more than just speaking. You shall not take the name of the Lord. When combined, take the name of the Lord. Most of the time, that means what we say with our words, but it's not limited to our words, and you're going to see that later on. You shall not take the name of the Lord, that is the name of Yahweh, your God. So there is one God who is over all people. Ephesians 3 says that. There is, there is one name, one father of all people. Not that he's a father in the way that we are his children, but he is fathered in the sense that he has created all people. You shall not take the name of your Lord, your God, in vain. In vain means unreality, flippantly. When we use God language or a life that treats him casually, uh, we break this commandment. Any careless or irreverent use of God's name, Jesus said uh, in Matthew 12. And we may get to it. I don't know if it's on the slides or not. But he said, you will be accountable for every careless word. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Jews thought about this so much that they would not use the name. You see it in all caps there, Lord. Yahweh. They would not use that name, but once a year, and only the high priest used it when they were given the blessing of atonement. Otherwise, they'd say Adonai. Why? Why were they so serious about this? Second half of the verse. For the Lord, for Yahweh, will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. God takes his character seriously. Alistair Begg said, Obedience to the third commandment will serve to distinguish those who know God and love God from those who don't. That in the first, you have this, some people deny that there's one God that says that there's no God or many gods. No, there's one God and that he's incomparable. But here it's, you will know someone by the way they speak about God and how they live for God. J.I. Packer, in his chapter on this, called this, Are you serious? And his point was, when you start reading through that, he was just observing the, the nature, even among believers, and the reflecting of the frivolous and insincere use of God's name in conversation. There is a severe consequence to misusing God's name in vain. In Leviticus twenty four sixteen, it says this, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. Everybody, inside the camp and outside the camp, we don't play lightly with God's name. Why so serious? I mean, why is God just just bent out of shape? Is he a little stiff? Does he just need to loosen up? I mean, what's wrapped up in a name? Well, we're going to see that the name of God represents the nature of God. And we're going to begin on page one of the Bible. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. The plurality of majesty. Here's the one who is the creator of the entire universe. We go out and we see this and we say, wow. You and I do. Eyes that have been opened to see the greatness of God. Hearts that have been granted to repent, see it and go, God is glorious. Elohim, who created all this. And then you see El. El Yon, God Most High, that not only is he the creator, he's far above, he's the ruler. He created the world, he oversees the world by his providence. And then you see El Shaddai, God Almighty. Not only is the creator and the ruler, he has the power to pull it off. There are some people who are in positions of power, but they can't pull it off. He is the one who started it all, sustains it all, and he has the power to oversee it all. And then you get... In chapter 2 of Genesis, you get another name, which I've captured in Psalm 8.1. O Lord, our Lord. Notice the difference there. O Lord, in, the, in your Bibles, if you're following along there, it's in all caps. O Yahweh, our Adonai. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So not, as, not only is God a creator God, but he's a personal God. He's a personal God. He's like a father. 
And then you see some other names. Again, I'm just giving you a few to show the magnificence, the magnitude, the mightiness when you speak the name God from your lips. When you speak the name Lord from your lips. Yahweh, the Lord. Yahweh Jireh, the Lord provides. That Abraham had taken his son, his only son whom he loved, and he brought him up to the mount where he was supposed to go. And he was going to offer him. And he said, the Lord will provide. And there was a ram. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord of peace. In Judges 6.24, this is the God in the time of chaos. There's this God of peace. Yahweh Rohi, the Lord our shepherd. I love that. Psalm 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is, present tense, my shepherd. Yahweh is, present tense, per, per, personally, my shepherd. The one who provides, the one who protects, is my shepherd, Yahweh, Rohi. In the New Testament, it's the good shepherd, where Peter calls him the chief shepherd. Jesus says of himself, I am the bread of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. And then in Isaiah, capturing all of these things, he's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He's everlasting Father. He's Prince of Peace. I can think of no other verse that kind of captures all the strategy of God who, who sees all. The Elohim, the Creator, the mighty God that El Shaddai, He can pull it off. The everlasting Father that He, he cares for His creation. He doesn't just, He's not the uh, absentee landlord that just started it, sits back, sees the thing fall apart, like don't have any money to fix it. He's the everlasting Father. And in this world full of chaos, in this world full of passions, led by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now that work in the flesh. Here's this God who steps in and he's the prince of peace. And all of that points to Jesus. And so you see, over and over, you see this word Yahweh. I just wanted to show it to you in the Hebrew. That is God's special name. All of those other names, you either have Elohim or El tagged on to a characteristic. You have Yahweh tagged on to a characteristic. But this here in Hebrew, Yahweh, the little apostrophe in Hebrew, by the way, you're reading right to left. So you've got what looks like the apostrophe is a Yod, and then you have an, and then you have an H and a V. So you've got this Yahweh. And if you see the next slide, here's how, to, here's how it's pronounced. Yahweh. Everybody say Yahweh. You... You, when you speak Hebrew, it's really easy. You can just get that phlegm in the back of your throat, Yahweh, and it's just it's helpful to clear things out. But that is who he is. He is Yahweh. And this is how serious he takes his name. In Exodus 3, then Moses said to Elohim, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the Elohim of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Elohim said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, the Elohim of Jacob has sent me to you. The one who is a personal God, he's the creator of your fathers. You remember Abraham? You remember Isaac? You remember Jacob? This is the one that has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Why is he so adamant about this name? I am who I am. It seems like some funny English sentence. It's because it says who he is. I am who I am. I have always existed. It doesn't say I was or as process theologians like to think I will be. There are those out there who think God is learning with us. He's just, he's just an older brother who's a little bit on down the line and he's, he's watching the world, doesn't really have sovereign control over it. <laughs> Ooh, ISIS is here. What should I do? I need to learn. That's not what he's doing. He is there and he has always existed. He is the self-existing one. In the beginning, there was nothing. Then God said, let there be light. God has always existed. Any self-determining, he determines all that goes on. I am who I am. And that means he is sovereign. 
He is over all. And included in all that are all those names we gave you. He is gracious. He is a shepherd. He is mighty. So how have we done? How has mankind done with honoring God for who he is? This is the God who created man, the God who created him for his own glory. How have we done? How have we done in our talk and in our walk? Well, here's a summary verse of what James thinks we do when it comes to speaking about God. With it, that is our mouth. He's talking about the power of the mouth, the taming of the tongue. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who have made in God's likeness. From the same mouth, Come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. We have a tendency to speak out of both sides of our mouth. It didn't always start that way. In Genesis 4.26, you see this idea of glory in 4.26 that that people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You see this in psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm. So don't get a purely negative picture. There's plenty in the Bible of people saying good things about God. God, my refuge. God, my rock. God did this. And there's a lot of wonderful things captured in the Psalms about how people, humans, reflect who God is. But alongside all that, you see not only the glory given to God, but you see perjury. Perjury is to take an oath. Perjury and hypocrisy. Perjury is to swear to God to do something and then not do it. In the Old Testament, there were times where people swore to God. And we'll see what Jesus thinks of that in a minute. But it was okay to, I'm going to swear to God to do this. But there was a severe law that if you didn't, it says in Leviticus 9.12, you shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God, meaning don't make a promise in my name and then not do it. I am Yahweh. I always fulfill my promises. And then the hypocrisy. You see that we can give glory to God, but then we can create perjury. We'll spend a whole commandment on that. Thou shalt not lie. And then there's this hypocrisy, Isaiah 29, 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. See, the external is connected to the internal. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Jesus would go on to say, the overflow of the heart, the mouth will speak. And he will use this very verse to condemn the religious who come and they give this, this flippant honoring of God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. I just pause right here. It's not on my script. Maybe I'm shouldn't do it, but I just say, how'd you sing this morning? Just question to you. You don't need to raise your hand. How'd you sing this morning? Are you singing about that almighty God? Is it well with your soul? Or are you doing this very thing, just honoring him with his lips? It is well with my soul. The game's on at 5 o'clock today. I just can't wait until this is over. He sometimes says something funny, but every now and then he... Is that what's going on in your mind, or are you engaged? Wow, it is well with my soul. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, with a love which he loved us. Are you singing these songs? Am I singing these songs? This is the one reason I bring it up all the time. I don't ever want to enter into a Sunday whether it be in song or communion, and just go through the motions. Too many of you were brought up in churches. Each Sunday, you read the Apostles' Creed, you said the Lord's Prayer, and you could do it by heart, and you go home, and you could just repeat it. And it means nothing, absolutely nothing. They're just words off your mouth because your heart is far from Him. Is your heart far from Him this morning? I just ask. And then there's this mockery. There's this mockery. Do you see it more outside the church than than inside the church. But there's this mockery. There's no such thing as God. Psalm 10.4, there is no God. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. But if you're reading through the psalm, it is a fascinating, fascinating psalm on the wickedness and their thoughts and their eventually coming to understand there is a God. They, they begin with, there is no God. 
Nobody can confront me. I'm accountable to no one, it says. But then you hit verse 11, and here's what they say. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. Well, wait a second. (laughs) You just said there is no God. So you've made a movement in the right direction that this God that didn't exist now exists, but he's forgotten. He has hidden his face from me. He'll never see it. As if you can perform something in the dark and God doesn't see it. There's this mockery of God, and it it's just overflowing in the world today. I kid you not, you've probably seen the preview, and it's not like I went looking for it, watching a game, and my kids have been well-trained. When the game's on, we pause. If it don't pause, they just automatically turn their heads. But there's a show coming out, if it hasn't already started, called Lucifer on ABC, America's Broadcasting Company. And it's about how the devil comes to L.A. I don't know why L.A., but he didn't come to Denver. But the devil comes to L.A., and he's working with the police department for good. Just a mockery of the scriptures, a mockery of the prince of the power of the air, a mockery of what God has said you should not follow, and we mock him. We, we mock him. Uh, I, I won't mention any names, but there are people who lead Bible studies who, who say, my Jesus is so bossy. Really? Your Jesus is bossy? He's the Lord of your life. He can tell you what to do. He is your boss. He's the, my boss is a Jewish carpenter, right? But to just say that, it's actually not so much f- mockery, but just flippant. My Jesus is so bossy. I would say my Jesus tells me what to do. My Jesus loves me. And then there's this profanity. That's originally when I read this um, years ago. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Mama, Mama said, don't you swear. And she was on to something about not swearing in God's name, Old Testament. But she meant don't say curse words. And, and you just see them all the time. You, you hear people say, GD, I won't even repeat it. Or you see in, you see in, uh, on Facebook and stuff, OMG. It's kind of the, it's, if you go look it up on the internet, let me just see all the acronyms and what they mean. OMG, oh my God. And calling Jesus' name in irreverence. I, I, to this day, if you're ever with me, you'll see it. If somebody ever says, Jesus Christ, in my presence, I'm like, really? Because <laughs> he said he was coming back. Is he here? And that's what I'll do to just show them what you just did. Kind of like when, when, when the Muslims get frustrated because we, we make cartoons of Allah or something like that. Well, you, you just called out Jesus Christ's name flippantly with no reverence. What, gee, usually it's, it's something falls, you know. Jesus Christ. Is he here? To, did he make that book fall or did you do it? Some of you are just like, you just dropped the Bible on the floor. Oh, no. It's okay. God's good. God's good. It's all right. It's leather bound. Wipe that off. But that's what we do. And and I was there. We talked about who you were to who you are, and I was that guy. Just using God's name in vain. I I had a vocabulary of curse words. I could use them in in every form of grammar. It It was gross. And then you realize, whoa. See, that's why it makes those words profane, is because you use those terms in ways they shouldn't be used. And then there's this flippant use, this casual use of God. The Lord told me. And it's flippant. And honestly, when I hear it, I get frustrated. I get frustrated on the inside. When I hear what the Lord told me, When I hear that, it is everything inside of me that goes, what's his voice sound like? Because he's never spoken to me one time audibly. And it it, it is the it is the Christians breaking of this commandment. God did this or the Lord told me that. Maybe I was reviewing this with my wife and she made a great point. How do you know that it's the Lord who said that to you? Because the angel, the devil comes as an angel of the light. 
Could he have not said that to you? Dallas Willard in his book, Hearing God, is one who's sympathetic to this, but even he says this. Sunday dinner was finished, but we lingered around the table, savoring the good food and reflecting on the morning service. The congregation where I served was very young, and the assistant pastor was excited about the plans for the new sanctuary. The morning message had focused on the plans of the new building. Our pastor spoke of his vision for the church-increased ministry. He indicated how strongly he felt God's guidance in the way the congregation was going, and he testified that God had spoken to him about these things that should be done. My wife's grandmother, they called her Mima, seemed deep in thought as we continued to chatter along, and finally she said quietly, here's a woman who'd been walking with the Lord all her life. And here's what she said quietly. I wonder why, wonder why God never speaks to me like that. This is Dallas Willard's uh, grandmother-in-law. And here's what he says about it. This simple comment, which came about like a bolt of the blue from the heart of this woman of unshakable faith and complete devotion. She had unshakable faith and complete devotion. Yet God never spoke to her like that. Forever changed my attitude, and these are his words, towards glib talk about God's speaking to us or about divine guidance. Through her words, in a way I came to understand only later, God had spoken to me. Now, he uses that language looser than I would, but he still makes a great point. Let's not be flippant about hearing the voice of God. Let me tell you about a wonderful experience I had early Monday morning, March 19th, 2007. A little after 6 o'clock, God actually spoke to me. There was no doubt that it was God. I heard the words in my head just as clearly as when a memory of a conversation passes across your conscience. The words were in English, but they had about them the absolute self-authenticating ring of truth. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God still speaks today. I couldn't sleep for some reason. I was at the Shalom House in northern Minnesota on a staff's couples retreat. It was about 5.30 in the morning. I lay there wondering if I should get up or wait until I got sleepy again. In his mercy... God moved me out of bed. It was mostly dark, but I managed to find my clothing, get dressed, grab my briefcase, and slipped out of the room without waking Noel. In the main room below, it was totally quiet. No one else seemed to be up. So I sat down on the couch in the corner to pray. And as I prayed and mused, suddenly it happened. God said, come and see what I have done. This was not the slightest, there was not the slightest doubt in my mind that these were the very words of God. In this very moment, at this very place, in the 21st century, 2007, God was speaking to me with absolute authority and self-evidencing reality. I paused to let it sink in. There was a sweetness about it. Time seemed to matter little. God was near. He had me in his sights. He had something to say. When God draws near, hurry ceases. Time slows down. And he would go on to talk about all the things that God said to him. And then this is what he says. Best of all, if you would like to hear the very same words I heard on the couch in northern Minnesota, read Psalm 66, 5 through 7. That is where I heard them. Oh, how precious is the Bible. It is the very word of God. In it, God speaks in the 21st century. This is the very voice of God. By this voice, he speaks with absolute truth and personal force. By this voice, he reveals his all-surpassing beauty. By this voice, he reveals the deepest secrets of our heart. No voice anywhere, anytime can reach as deep or as high, lift as high or carry as far as the voice of God we hear in the Bible. It is a great wonder that God still speaks today through the Bible with greater force and greater glory and greater assurance with greater sweetness and greater hope and greater guidance and greater transforming power and greater Christ-exalting truth than can be heard through the, any voice in any human soul on the planet from outside the Bible. And then he goes on to talk about a well-known university Christian university professor who said God had spoken to him and told him 
to give his royalties from a book to a needy student. Here's what he says. What makes me sad about this article is not that it isn't true or didn't happen. What's sad is that it really gives the impression that extra biblical communication with God is surprisingly wonderful and faith deepening, all the while the supremely glorious communication of the living God, which personally and powerfully and transformingly explodes in the receptive heart through the Bible every day is passed over in silence. I grieve at what is communicated here, that the great need of our time is for people to experience the living reality of God by hearing his word personally and transformingly in scripture. Something is incredibly wrong, and I would say sinful, something is incredibly wrong when the words we hear outside of scripture are more powerful, more affecting to us than the inspired word of God. Let us cry with the psalmist, incline my heart to your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law. I can't argue with your experience. If you come to me and say, the Lord said this to me, I I will have no, I don't, okay. I, I can't argue with your experience. Mark Driscoll said, God told him audibly to marry grace and disciple men plant churches and disciple men. Okay, but it sounds just like the Great Commission to me. And it sounds like marrying a believer, (laughs) being a part of God's community of people and passing on the faith to the next generation. Just sounds like the Great Commission to me. But we blaspheme God when we don't know. And if you know, by, by the way, if you know that this is what the Lord's telling you, you better do it and you better do it until he tells you to go because I've seen it. I ministered to singles for seven years, and the Lord told me this, and the Lord told me that, and then when it didn't go well, all of a sudden God was telling them to leave what he had just told them to do. It's really strange how that works. God tells you to go do something, then it gets tough, and then all of a sudden, well, I just make a decision. That's how God guides us. According to his scriptures, just make a decision. And if you're going to use that language, make sure it's backed up by scripture. It's the most flippant use it's the most, and what, I, what blows me away, and I don't get it, is we, we're, a, we're in a culture of people who want to be free. We want to do our own thing. And really, if you go according to Scripture, God guides your mind and he transforms your heart so you're free as a, as a son. We're no longer slaves. We're sons. We're children that we can make these decisions. It, it blows me away that the Bible offers you all this freedom, yet when we come down to making the decision, we want to just tag that on there. The Lord told me like it were something all more powerful. It's not. This is powerful. You get a barely an amen on that. that. That'll work. I'll take it. This is powerful. I'm not saying not to have an intimate relationship with God. Don't hear that, please. I was talking to my two of my friends in Denton this week, and they were talking about Tim Keller, and he sent me, and I'm happy to send it to you, about a sermon that Tim Keller did communicating to pastors, talking about experiencing God through the Scriptures. And it's very emotive. It's not as much cognitive, and it puts pastors on the edge. And that's fine. I want to listen to it. So don't hear me saying not have an intimacy God is who he is, and it seems, in my experience, I've been walking with him for several decades, and I've learned a lot from him, and I love him more today than I did, and he's not one time said anything audibly, not one time, and that's okay, that's okay. I'll just give myself an amen for that. It's okay. This is all you need. You don't need some audible voice because you probably can't tell the difference. And if he shows up and he shows up visibly, by all means, do exactly what he says. But I would make sure it's in accordance with the scripture. So let's, let's just let's forget the flipping talk. Let's, let's put it away. 
And let's go to, to, the, to the God of the Bible and just recognize that here's a God who's, who's the plurality of his majesty, that he's personal. He knows you and me better than, he, than we know ourselves. I know my wife better than anybody in this room, but God knows her better. And he relates to her every morning. Every morning she's up and she reads her Bible. And God talks to her and she talks to him in prayer. It's a great conversation. He's powerful. He, he moves in people's lives. I got to go to, to Denton this week with Ben Zamora. And we were just talking. I said, tell me about your life. And he just told me. And I just, just got to hear through the power of prayer, God's great work in his life, his mother's life, his sister. It was just wonderful. He's a powerful God. He's personal. He's powerful. He's purposeful. He's moving us exactly where he wants us. He's perfect. He's passionate. He does, he's jealous for us. He is present. He is here with us. He's praiseworthy. He's uncontainable, unlimited. He is jealous. He is just, and he is gracious. But our taking his name in vain isn't just in what we say. Skip Ryan says this, taking the name of God in vain is more than just speech. It involves acting in a way which is out of character with our true identity. To break the third commandment is to act in a way that is inconsistent with our identity as one who bears the name Christ. You are a Christian. You are a little Christ. And this is backed up by Scripture. Micah 4.5 says, For all peoples each walk each in the name of his God, but we walk in the name of our Lord our God. So to take, to lift up, is not only to lift up with our voices, it is to lift up with our lives. In 1 Kings 18.17, Now it was in the heart of David to build a house for the name of the Lord. See, it's, it's, it's far more than just what you speak. It's, it's your whole attitude in life. And I think the main issue when it comes to not in just in speaking, but in our walking is our commitment. Are we committed? Are we taking the name's, Lord's name in vain when we aren't committed to what he's committed to or we're not living that, what we're committed to by his power? That are we committed like David? David had said in his heart, I'm going to build something for God. Are you and I building something in the name of the Lord our God? Are we just building our own thing? Or has someone not walked with us enough to say, your whole life, it doesn't matter what you do, whether you're a pilot, whether you're a teacher, whether you're involved in sports, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what you do, but are you building that for the name of the Lord your God? Or are you building it for your own little kingdom? Because if so, I would say indirectly, you're breaking the third commandment. What are you and I committed to? And then how are we committed? Are we committed to doing that with excellence? Are we committed to do it with holiness? Are we committed to do it in our own power, in our own flesh? Acts 3, 6, Peter <clears throat> says, I have no silver or gold, money can't buy this, but what I do have I give to you. Notice, he didn't say, I'm Peter the apostle. He's made me the leader. Get up and walk. He said, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. So I would just ask you a question. Are you and I committed to the things that, are co that God's committed to? And are we doing it by the power that he gives? I mean, how do we approach God today? I've seen it in the world. I've lived it. There was a time when I went to work for Arthur Anderson, and you can just watch this over years. From Monday through Friday, it was a suit and a tie because we took seriously our jobs. And somewhere along the way, it was like, well, Monday through Thursday, suit and tie, we'll just go business casual on Friday. And then we get to a point where no longer do we have to wear a suit and tie. Glory days. It's just business casual all week. And you say, well, it's not about the height of man or what he wears. It's about his internal attitude. Exactly. Is our casual dress, is it just a parable of our casual approach to life and our casual approach to authority? Just asking a question. We live, in a, we live in a culture, so I'm not up here saying, don your suits next week. I don't want that. I want you to see, is it a reflection of your heart? It doesn't matter if you don your suit. There's too many people who don their suits and their hearts, their honor with their lips and their hearts are far from them. But I just wonder, because here's, here's, what, here's why I say that. 
When's the last time you saw a political debate and some dude up there in a t-shirt and jeans vying for your allegiance to follow him or her in this country and they're in their best? I don't know. Something to think about. What are we committed to and how are we committed to it? Because if we're honest with ourselves, and I'm, I'm looking at myself now, I fall woefully short of honoring God in all I say and all I do. I do. No temptation has overtaken me, but such as is common to man, and I'm certain there may be one or two of you in here that struggle with it too. That do I, am I committed all the time to what God wants me to be committed to, and do I speak about him in such a way that uplifts him, uplifts people, or is it ju- if I, it's just an incantation that I just kind of tag God on to the end of my sentence? Like if I pray for a big, you know, Lord, I want, I want Eagle Bible Church to plant a church in India, but then let's plant one in Hawaii, in Cancun, in Jesus' name. And then because I said that, God owes us. I'm just asking because I'm, I'm evaluating my own heart. And I'm wondering if you need to as well. What happens when, when we fall short? We do the only thing we're supposed to do. Run to the cross and cling to the one who never, did not once in his life, ever, misspoke or lived in disobedience. Jesus said in John 43, I have come in my Father's name. I come representing my Father, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. He's just saying, I've come in my Father's name. In John 10, 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe that the works I do, the actions that he does, he does in the name of his Father. I do in my Father's name, and they bear witness about me. Jesus always and only did what his Father told him to do. He's the perfect, he's the perfect person on submission. Young kids, anybody in a position to follow the authority above you, all of us have that to some degree. Jesus is your model. He always did what his daddy told him to do. In John 12, 28, he prays to his Father. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven said, I have glorified it, meaning I endorse you. You have always and only done what I've asked you to do, and I will glorify it again. Jesus is the one who always did. He never broke the third commandment. He never said anything glib about God. He never did anything in his own power. He was always and only committed to what God was doing. And so we run to him. Why? Acts 4, 11 and 12. That was read earlier. I'll just read 11. Jesus is like the cornerstone, and there's no salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's it. There's only one name. It is not Allah. It is not whatever you want to make it in any Hindu culture. His name is Jesus. And we run to him and we say, God, forgive me for just, though, I, though my heart's probably in the right place, forgive me for just speaking flippantly about you. Father, forgive me. I'm, I'm not committed to the things you're committed to. I, I'm, I'm so caught up into to this world or I've got so much debt that I'm, I'm in the bondage of money, not in the blessings of ministry. Father, forgive me. I need your help. That's all he's asking for us to do. He's not asking for some... Superman movement. He's just come to the cross and cry out to God. And Jesus said this then. You have heard it said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all. No need to make any promises. I promise on the, on the Holy Bible, no need to do that. Either by heaven, for that's God's throne, or by earth, for that's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because that's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. You're not in control. Let what you say simply be yes and no. Anything more than this comes from literally the evil one, the father of lies. And so we don't need to make oaths, I swear to God. Just, you're going to be there? Yes. Your word means a lot because it represents who you are. When you say you're going to be somewhere, you say you're going to do something, Jesus simply said, do it. Do it. Honestly, there are really just two types of people in this room. 
there, there are those of you who need to be careful of making commitments. You're overcommitted. Amen? We're too busy. So if somebody said, hey, can you just say, no, I really can't at this time. You don't need to make a, oh, and give, just say, let your yes be yes, just no, I, I cannot at this time. That's some of you. There are some of you who aren't committed enough. And I thank you for saying it a couple weeks ago. There are some of you who aren't committed enough to God's things. You're so overcommitted in other things, you're not committed to the things God's committed to. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what he's building. And I think, I got to thinking about it this week. Why don't people commit? I think there's just a couple reasons. Number one, there's lack of understanding. And I will take, and the elders will take full responsibility for this. John Brown, who you met this week, told me a long time ago, just talk about God. Develop, he said that make sure your relationship with God and Jesus is wonderful. Talk about him in such a way that people long to do it. So if there's a lack of understanding of how glorious this church is, not just because of the curtains, but just how glorious this church is, if you think about it, about the people you surround yourself with, if you're not committed to this church and covenant membership and other things, but if, if you lack understanding in that, I'll take full responsibility. The elders take, because we have not communicated in such a way that you go, this is glorious. I want to be a part of this. I want to give up X to be a part of EBC. But then there are some other things. So that's the heaviest one. There are three others on you. You have too many other good things going on. Other good things. Other good things. Or you've done your time. Yeah, I used to do that. There's never a time when you will not serve. You are a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, in that sense, your boss. He was never boss of you. And then there's, I think the biggest one is this fear of missing out. I've seen it over and over. Put something on the put something out there for people to sign up for for a couple months. Well, it'll be like one week before because we, we all know our calendars, but we're waiting. We've got eight weeks left, six, five, four, three. Ooh, there's nothing on there now I'll commit. Versus saying, no, I want to be committed to this and I'm going to go to this because I believe what this is going to offer is going to be awesome. And if something else should come up, that's okay. It's January. There's a there's a women's retreat. I, I think it's in March. We got the dates right. Commit to it right now. Like just put it on your calendar and commit to it, ladies, and go. I'm going to go because I'm going to be surrounded with women of God, and they're going to be talking about the Bible. They're going to be talking about peace and rest. And I know my husband can take care of my kids. He is the best at making cereal. Really good at ho- heating up a pizza. I know that. But I'm going to commit right here. Skiing may come up. Something else may come up. A sweet tickets to the opera or ballet may come up. But I'm going to commit to this. It's just three couple days over a weekend. But I'm going to commit to this. But I don't have the money. It's been told to you. We'll cover that for you. I'm going to commit to this because I believe by the power of the Spirit and those preparing this and the, and the truth contained in this word, something great's going to happen. And it may be that that something great is not this, oh, you walk away and you're like, I went as A and now I'm B. But that something great is you're going to meet somebody. And it's not going to be like overwhelming. And then a couple weeks later, hey, let's go get a coffee. And then you start and you get to know this person. And all of a sudden you have a best friend and you have somebody that's going to come together. And it's just going to be so unique because you made a commitment. And you didn't wait to the last minute. That's just, again, I gave you, like, right up to this point, all of that, I've given you up to this point, I I think it's scriptural, back it up with scripture. That's just my opinion. I could be wrong. But I think there's, in this, 
valley in particular, there's this fear of missing out. And all I would ask you to do, commit. Commit. Some of you have been here never committed. Commit. Don't swear by Jesus' name. I'm going to just let your yes be yes. And if you can't, that's cool. I, what I respect when we have people, when I say, hey, are you going to do a small group? No, I cannot because I'm doing this, but I will. There's a dear couple. They always do a uh, spring small group, but they don't do one in the fall. Or it's a vice versa. It's one of the two. Because there is a commitment that they're committed to that they go and praise the Lord. I had a person who, who taught for us last semester, couldn't teach, because they said, I just can't. I'm, I'm committed to other things. Praise the Lord. Let us know up front. That's great. And for the rest, commit. It's not, it, you know what? I won't, say it's, I won't say it's not hard. It is hard. It is difficult. There are Sunday afternoons. I love the Davids. I love them. Love the units. Love the Helens. Love the Lorances. Who else? The Dailies. Love them. Love going to that small group. But there are some afternoons I'm like, I'm tired. I just want to sleep. Golf song. It's really like a white noise for that comfy couch. And no, we don't. But it's four o'clock and I'm going to go. And it's those times, it's mostly those times where I walk away going, that was awesome, blah, blah, blah. Commit. So that's, that's our walk, but most of it's in our talk. Let me, let me just... How do you honor the Lord's name in your talk? Pray then like this, Matthew 6, 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Pray to God. Every time you see Jesus pray in the Gospels, he prayed to God, God the Father. By scriptural pattern, by the teaching of your Savior, pray to the Father in heaven by the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Pray to your Father in heaven in the name of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Just don't, we don't need to get cute in our prayers. Just pray to, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. John Piper, I showed you the book last week, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. It's a book written entirely on Jesus. Entirely on Jesus. It's about that thin, you ought to get it. It's the best Christology out there because it's just full of scripture. It has a prayer at the end of every chapter. In every chapter. Our Father, Heavenly Father. Just pray to the Father in heaven. That's how you honor God. Hallowed be his name in Jesus' name by the power of the Spirit. When it comes to our words, let's just think before we speak. Ben and I had a wonderful trip to Denton Bible Church. Got a lot of information. I took the fire hose. I got about six guys. I just opened the fire hose and Ben's just taking notes the whole time. It was awesome. Do you think it was awesome? It's a great time. Do you think, and I, the Lord was leading in that. The Lord, I think the Lord was leading in that. I can say that with, he was guiding. But he never said anything to us. His hands are all over it. He's sovereign and providential. But I'm not going to come back and go, oh, the Lord said to us when we were, he didn't say a word. But with the abundance of the counselors, there's victory. And four or five men were just giving us the same direction. And we're like, the Lord is at work. Just think before you speak and speak to the glory of God. Speak to his glory. In everything we say, is this true? Should I say this? Because if it's not true, it's a lie. And I don't want to do that. Is it necessary? Is the timing right? Do I need to talk about how hot my wife is right now? No, probably not. Talk about that later. And is it kind? Can I say what I'm truthfully going to say well-timed in a kind manner? Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Think before you speak. Speak to the glory of God. I have, a, I have two more and then I'm done. Um, there's, this one came up. When you're always talking about you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for God does not hold guiltless the one who takes his name in vain. Every time it comes up, at least one person in the room, or as one article I read this week, you better capitalize the H in him, or you broke the third commandment. 
Probably not. The Old Testament was written in lowercase. The New Testament was written in all uppercase, so it really doesn't matter. People just sometimes capitalize him, and if that's what you want to do, great. If you don't want to do it and follow normal English uh, grammar, that's cool too. The reason why most translations don't capitalize it because they neither want they either want to keep the typical English usage rules or because they want to adhere to the text as closely as possible. For those who choose to capitalize, they do so because they want to show it as a sign of respect. But I, you know what? I don't. But sometimes I do. It just depends on who I'm writing to. So if you get an email from me and the H is capitalized, just it, it comes up. I don't know why. It always does. But here's the most important one. You and I have been commissioned. It's not an option. It's not, you know, I'll take the Sunday school. Love that. Give me the service. I'm singing. Not just saying the thing. It's coming from my heart. Want that. Love the small group. You and I have been commissioned. And the most powerful thing about it is we are to go, therefore, making disciples of all nations. To India. To Texas. <laughs> the great nation of Texas. Uh, to China. To South America. How? Here's the most powerful thing about this. Besides Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go. You, you baptize people in the name of the Father. Because he is the one. And in the name of the Son. Because he's the one who died. The Father is the one who created the world. Jesus is the one who saved the world. And the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to go to the world. That's our mission. Our, Matt, that's a big commitment. Ben asked me on the way back, he said, what is the one thing, what is the one thing you learned from that church? I No hesitation. Discipleship. Discipleship. They, they taught it well. Go, go take some, gather people and teach them. Are you and I doing that? If not, why not? I'd, like I've said before, I will spend all the money in this wallet. There's not a whole lot, but I will spend all the money in this wallet and I'll give you all the time you need for you, man, woman, or child, to understand that. That you and I get to partake in the greatest thing in the name of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You and I will get discipleship. And if you're not discipling someone seriously, I'll meet with you. I'll walk with you. I'll show you how to. That is the most empowering thing. That is the most enjoyable thing. That is the most you get to the end of the day. And you say, is well. Because you're involved in something, something so magnificent, I can't even articulate it well enough. To be back there with guys I was with and to let them pour into Ben, it made me made my week. I was just like, this is cool. I didn't say anything. I just, just speak. I'm such a great discipler. <laughs> just speak. Fill him with knowledge. Show him things. And he walks away encouraged. And I just go, that's the, that's the coolest thing in the world. That I it's not sports teams. It's not athletics. It's not arts and academics. It is can I take the knowledge that I, can I take my relationship with God, pass it on to someone else so that they do the same? That's the greatest thing. And you get to do it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You do it in the name. And so I'll end with this. We were going to have some people sing it, and I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to read it. But what a great hymn to end this sermon with. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes the sorrows, heals the wounds, and drives away our fear. That even if your wounds aren't physically healed, the fact that you have Jesus makes everything okay. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. Some of you are here in here today and you're just running, running, running. Just sit with Jesus to give you rest. Oh, Jesus, 
shepherd, guardian, friend. Go back one. My prophet, he tells you what to do. My priest, he intercedes for you. My king, he is your Lord. My Lord, my life, my way, my end. Accept the praise I bring. How weak the effort of my heart, how cold my warmest thought. But when I see you as you are, when I see you as you are, I'll praise you as I ought. That's that whole idea. I hope we're giving you a good understanding who he is, who God the Father is, Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. Till then I wonder, till then I would your love proclaim with every fleeting breath and may music of your name refresh my soul in death. Sounds like that old prayer my mama taught me. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I'll say it now. I know, Lord, my soul you'll take. Father, thank you for who you are. You have revealed to us who you are and what you do and by your name. I thank you that you converse with me every day in your Bible. And I pray now as we take communion that you would be glorified as we end in song that you would be honored. And I pray that all of us would sing. And if there's anything troubling us, Lord, would we for the next few moments get that taken care of in communion and give our all and our benediction. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.